You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. Hi, I'm Deep Tran, an editor at American Theater Magazine. I'm Jose Solis, a freelance theater critic, and we're your token theater friends—people of color who go to the theater and are usually the only people of color in the room. We're trying to change that by talking about theater with all of you. How have you been, Jose? How's Thanksgiving? Fat. Fat. How's yours? Same. Same. I, I went to Carmine's in Times Square. For Thanksgiving, so super fat, super fat. You were in we thanks, got, you were in Times Square during Thanksgiving. It's insane. That's what happens when you get out of towners. They want to go Thanksgiving. They want to go to Times Square. They they want to know if they should see Hamilton. You know the the, the usuals of out of towners for Thanksgiving. Well, it's your duty as a New Yorker to go take them there. Then yeah, well, I consider it my duty to recommend them things that aren't Hamilton. Because they won't you be know? able to get tickets. Anyway. Exactly. It's like, oh my god, what else should, I, should we go see? And it's like, oh, go see Waitress. That's fun. Go see The Band's Visit. That's also fun. You know, and that is why Broadway needs better marketing. Yes. But, and cheaper tickets, but that's a and, whole and cheap, story. Yeah, and cheaper tickets, which is why we do this podcast. So in case you can't go, go see things that we talk about, at least you can hear about them. Right? Okay, so on this episode, we are reviewing some shows, talking to some artists. First up, we have King Kong on Broadway. Then we are going to do What to Send Up When It Goes Down by the Movement Theater Company, currently playing at ART Theaters. And then for our interview, we are talking to playwright Ming Pfeiffer and actor Midori Francis. They're both doing the play, a play called Usual Girls at Roundabout Theater Company on 46th Street. And we love the play. It's brutal. And we think you're going to enjoy this, the conversation that we had with them about teenage girlhood. And then at the end of the show, inspired by some... People being mad at theater critics and saying they should not read show reviews. We're going to be talking about why we do this and the people, the critics that we like. Because you know what? If you don't like critics, then we don't have a job, and that would make us very sad because then we have to do something else, something else with our life. Yeah, I mean, it's not like critics make a lot of money anyway. Exactly. We just do it for the free shows. Yeah. No, we should all be... I do it. Well, we'll get to that in a second, but I, <laughs> I don't do it for the free shows. I'm just putting that on the record. <laughs> so I don't do it either. I'm just saying some people. So let's start off with, with the eighth wonder of the world. King Kong, the musical. Does he sing or dance? Tell us more, Jose. He does not, unfortunately. King Kong is a musical adaptation of the film by Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Schoetzak. And probably, I mean, you don't need me to tell you what King Kong's about, but if you have, if you were born super recently, if you're like a baby and you have no idea of the King Kong myth, what happens is it's a Depression era set story of a filmmaker's expedition to the mysterious Skull Island where his crew runs into a giant ape they call Kong. And coming along for the ride is Anne Darrow, who's this like bright-eyed, naive young actress who's trying to break into the movie industry. And she captivates the heart of 
the creature and helps lure him back to New York City in captivity, where he causes quite the chaos. And you don't need me to tell you what happens to poor Kong at the end. It was Beauty that killed the beast. It was. I can't believe they didn't. Did they say they that? They did end? say oh, the right. line, but they didn't say it at the end. It, like, it was like an offhanded comment. Oh, anyway. Yeah. One of the many problems that we have with this show. So King Kong has been adapted for the big screen on two previous occasions. It's the exact same uh, story, but also the original spawned many sequels, and some of them were made all over the world. Like there's like one of my favorites is like King Kong versus Godzilla, which is (laughs) it's so much fun. And there's even been like attempts at rebooting the sequels. Like there was like Return to Skull Island or something like that. Yeah, a the recent years ago. Skull Island in 2016 with um, Brie Larson yes. and Tom Hiddleston, mm-hmm. which was pretty terrible. But anyway, this musical features songs by Marius DeVries, with book by Jack Thorne and lyrics by Eddie Perfect. And they are the latest in, in a line of people who have been trying to adapt King Kong for the stage. This is an Australian production. And what basically happened is uh, Global Creatures wanted to create create a giant 20-foot, 2,000-pound Kong puppet. And, they, and the producers wanted to build a show around it. And so this thing has been in development hell for what, like five years? Oh, Jesus, I don't, I don't even know because it played Australia like five years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. And like they changed well, well, yeah, with, everything. Yeah, it, it was like a different creative book writer musical team. But I mean, like this is totally a musical <clears throat> that was done in like a factory kind of environment. Like you can see like, I mean, you just said that they made the musical revolve around the puppet mm-hmm. and i mean maybe i'm just being like a cynical new yorker but after you've seen the puppet for like the first like two minutes then the enchantment's over was it over for you no oh really dang do you have a thing against giant puppets jose i don't but i was like <laughs> okay cute puppet like why isn't this an exhibit at some amusement park why are people being forced to sing and dance around it and sing and dance really, really, really forgettable songs. Yeah. Uh, my thing my thing about the puppet was that after a while, it wasn't so much the story. I, I got caught up in the craft element of it. It's kind of like, you know, my um, gateway musical was Phantom of the Opera. That was like the musical that made me fall in love with Broadway, be- mostly, be- mostly because of the spectacle element. And so watching King Kong, like, it was something new that I hadn't seen before. Like the face, the that that puppet is so expressive. His face, like I haven't seen anything like it on stage because you have he's you know controlled like a marion. He's a marionette puppet, so there's about twelve people controlling his body, and then there's three people controlling his face, and there and one of them like voices does his voice off stage, and so you can get like he reacts to things. In its face, and so you, as an audience member, you're you're like odd because he's so giant, and like you feel empathy for him because he's a monkey and he just wants a friend. But two and a half hours of that. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Phantom, true. and even now, I, I saw Phantom a couple of years ago. Phantom hasn't been retouched at all. It's the exact same show that people saw back in the eighties, but with Phantom, guitar riffs, they add guitar yeah. riffs. But Phantom. <laughs> It's still spectacular, and that's not only because mm-hmm. of the chandelier, but also because regardless of what you think about Andrew Lloyd Webber, because I know he's quite controversial, the songs are so iconic. 
like we all know the songs from Phantom, even if we've never seen Phantom. Mm-hmm. And do you feel that any of the songs from King Kong are going to transcend the musical? Oh, no, no. And that's where this musical actually falls short of things like Phantom or, you know, The Lion King. The music felt really secondary and really forgettable. Like after a while, it just felt like generic rock ballads. And unfortunately, like any time... Because the story is so... The other characters are so underdeveloped. There's only three human characters, aside from King Kong. Uh, So anytime King Kong wasn't on stage, you had to spend time with these people who you don't really like or sympathize with. And they're singing songs that aren't really compelling. And so you mostly just... The best thing is the ape. And he doesn't sing, which is super dull. But like one of the things that 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 really bothered me about the show was that in this like factory commercial only mentality they went and they did changes that they thought were going to be woke mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm, modern mm-hmm, and they mm-hmm. for instance they uh they took they removed the character jack driscoll who historically has always been Anne darrow's love interest yes they got rid of him and Anne darrow has no love interest because she's a strong woman who wants to take on the world by herself and i am all about girl power and feminist musicals but i don't like that they were using this you know really important thing such as like feminism to try to convince us that their show was something it wasn't because the show is far from feminist it just wears like a feminist t-shirt when straight men try to write really strong women and they just just have the strong woman like andero in the in the musical literally says i'm not a damsel in distress they they make it so overt they just say it instead of like giving her a motivation beyond i just want to be an independent woman on my own like part of the Kong mythology is that kong it's Anne's kind it's kind of Anne's fault that Kong goes is captured. Different, you know, adaptations does that scene in different ways. Sometimes she she is forced to do it. Sometimes, you know, in the 2005 Peter Jackson version, she's tied up, and so and so Kong, she's bait she baits him. And and in this one, like it was really disturbing to me that that she willingly agreed to, for him to get captured like in one scene carl says and just scream and he'll come to you and uh, and i'll make you famous and she does and there's like no i didn't understand the character in that moment of why and then like she changes her mind like you know 10 minutes later but oh my god this is a terrible thing i've done but like she does a story beat but there's no interiority to the character where you understand like why she would do such a thing and then the ape gets killed and she sings a song about how much he taught her. Exactly. But <laughs> Oh my god, I'm so annoyed. I'm still so annoyed. But I'm by glad that. that you mentioned that because I would have totally been on board for an Anne Darrow that was much more complex than either like the damsel in distress or like like the you know proto modern like superhero kind of person. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that I was thinking about and you know the sh- I, I I resent the show for teasing me. Or for making me hope that it would take twists that would make it interesting. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that I kept thinking in that instance when Anne herself helps bring Kong to New York was how far men make women go for their art. And I couldn't help but think about, 
you know, that thing uh, with Uma Thurman and Quentin Tarantino. Oh, yeah. Where she, she was the star of three of his most beloved movies. And years later, during the Me Too movement, we, in fact, found out that she had been practically tortured by Tarantino. She almost died at some mm-hmm. point when he was when he made her do this stunt. And I would have been super interested in seeing Anne maybe, you know, that side of Anne being explored, how she's so ambitious and how ambition sometimes leads people to do the not the right thing. Yeah, and I think there was something interesting in what they did in making the character of Anne. Uh, Chris, uh, Christiani Pitts plays Anne, and she, unlike in previous versions where Anne's usually played by a blonde white woman, uh, in this version, Anne is played by a black woman. And there's this really compelling song she sings in the second act about how she and Kong are both like the last of their kind, where they have an, they feel an affinity f- for each other because they're both, you know, outcasts basically. Which, if you think about the story of Kong, originally it was kind of coded to be a metaphor for interracial relationships, like black man slash ape falls in love with white woman, and white woman kills him. And in this, like, they, I feel like they had an opportunity to really take that metaphor and make it a metaphor for racism against, you know, black men and black women, and they just completely botch it. Yeah, because also something else that apparently they assumed that if you remove the uh, also historically, there's always like native people in Skull Island Mm -hmm. who are often portrayed in the most racist, most horrible ways. And in the musical, they remove them. And I am not by any means asking them to bring them back because those are like, yeah, those are not the kind of representation we want to see. But it seems to me that the creators of this show thought, oh, let's get rid of the natives. And that way we get rid of like all the colonialist undertones, which mm-hmm. is not true. At its core... It's the, a colonialist tale. It still is. Yeah. You can remove all the natives you want and you can try to avoid making super racist jokes. But the show is still about fucking white people. I mean, just like that guy who died recently in that island... Oh, yeah. 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 That dude who was trying to, like, convert people on an Indian island, and then they kill him with a bow and arrow. Against the law. He had been told mm-hmm. constantly he was not allowed to go there. But there he went, and now he's dead. And now, probably thanks to his corpse, all those people are going to die. And that's infuriating. Yeah. But at least, you know, they felt the wonder. Wonder. Oh, It'll change you forever. But, you know, like for a show that talks so much about wonder, there was nothing wondrous to me about this production. Like I was, oh, I saw You the, really don't like that. Pu- you, I saw dad, the, you don't like that puppet, do you? I, no, because the puppet was cute, but I saw him. And it's kind of like that thing where you go, you know, like when you were a child, maybe I was just like an asshole kind of child. But when, you, when you're a child and your parents take you to see like the big Christmas trees or like the windows mm-hmm. or like any of that kind of like you know, uh, spectacle kind of thing. And then you see it for like five minutes and then you're like, how long can you really stare at the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree without, before you're like bored out of your mind? And and I've been thinking about like what really, what bothered me about that ending. And I think it was because I think what's really enduring about these tales that keep on getting recycled over and over again is like they can be a metaphor for whatever for for the time that you're living in. Like you can modify it to fit what the struggles that we're going through in in the moment that you're making it. And I feel like for this, like they didn't know what 
the what kind of message or what the metaphor was. They just wanted to make a monster, a typical, you know, monster movie or musical, which is completely fine, but, you know, you want something that lasts rather than something that's just going to be forgettable. And, and I think it would have been better if they just had, you know, Kong kill everybody and then it'd be a metaphor for, you know, this is what, this is what happens with racism or colonialism. You get shot with a bow and arrow by the natives. <laughs> Not in that is a story we need right now. Not in America. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, effects are great, though. Sound, sound effects, I really enjoyed the sound design. Uh, King Kong has an open run, and tickets are 45 to $175 during Christmas week. But if you go before Christmas or after Christmas, then top prices are 145 So if you have a little kid and you want to take them to their first Broadway musical and see a giant puppet, you know, more power to you. Go see the Lion King. Dude, Lion King's expensive. Even Frozen. Go see Frozen, which <laughs> is bad, but go see Frozen. At least the songs are beautiful. It's true. It's true. Ah, I'm choice. So sad. SpongeBob's gone. Oh, oh, you head over heels. For children? Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, yeah, children should be exposed to. Yeah, stories. queerness. Yeah. 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 Yeah, take your children to head over heels. <laughs> anyway, uh, the next show is on the other end of the price spectrum because, full disclosure, we had a third show we were going to review, but then one of the actors in the show got sick, which meant our, the performance we wanted to go to was canceled, and we haven't been able to go since. So we're only talking about two shows today. Sorry, folks. But the other show we're talking about is on a smaller scale. It's called What to Send Up When It Goes Down by Alicia Harris. And it's presented by the Movement Theater Company at Art New York. And fun fact, Alicia was our very first guest on Token Theater Friends. So we have a soft spot for her. And that is our bias there. But the play is... uh, It's not so much a play. It's more like a ritual. We like you enter the space, you enter the lobby, and all around you are two hundred photos of pe- black people who have been killed by the police. It's, there's so many; it's overwhelming. And then you, and then an actor comes out and and they say, "This experience is for black people. White people, we are fu- we're so glad you came, but this is not for you." And and then you go inside and all the audience stands in a circle and they do that privilege exercise where you step forward if you've ever heard anti-blackness expressed, you step forward if you've ever experienced it, those kinds of things. And then the scripted part begins, which is vignettes of the emotions that black people feel in this country around whiteness and anti-blackness and institutionalized racism. I have a question for you, though, because you said that the show was, it's a black space, Mm -hmm. but you said that white people weren't technically invited, but that also, like, I mean, does it mean that you stay? Because I know that whenever they said this is, the next part is only for our bl- black members of the audience. Mm-hmm. I didn't stay for that. I didn't and, stay. No. Okay. So it's, you know, it's not not non-whites. It's, it's for black people. Which, and then if you mm-hmm. happen to be if a person of color who's not black, it's also 
you know, imply that the show is you're being invited. It's not mm-hmm. for you. And in fact, uh, one of my, I saw the show last night and I'm still thinking about it. And one of my pet peeves about shows like this is listening or reading the way in which culturally incompetent white critics uh, talk about shows like this because they, they're going to go and they first, they establish all the reasons why they're not the right person to talk about the show. And then they go ahead and dissect it anyway. They're like, I, I'm not the right person, but here's what I think. And I don't want to really play along in that game because it makes me think about going back to that guy trying to colonize that little island that he was not invited to. <laughs> and I feel that, you know, it's the same process. When a mm-hmm. white critic says, I'm not supposed to be commenting on this, but I will. It's the same process. And it makes me think yeah. of like, in the, you know, like centuries, we, we still see it happening. And all the colonizers go and they witness the rituals. And then they wrote in their journals what they thought the ritual was about. And they honestly had no idea because they didn't even speak the languages of these people. So I want to acknowledge that there were many references in What to Send Up When It Goes Down that flew past me. Oh, yeah. And I think that's okay. Uh, I I will say also that I am very grateful to Alicia Harris and the ensemble for welcoming me into their ritual Mm -hmm. and for letting me witness it and for reminding me that it's not my place to be interpreting it. Yeah. So... Watching the show, there's something that I realized that I have never done before, and it's that I have never said the names of all these uh, African-American people who have been killed by the cops in America. I've never done it, and at some point when they make us say the name of one of them, I was very, very yeah, uncomfortable. Yeah, Robertson, yeah. So with your permission, permission Deep, and mm-hmm. listeners, I would like to correct that now, and I want to mention Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice. Sam DuBose, Terrence Crutcher, Christian Taylor, Alton B. Sterling, Jeremy McDowell, Paul O'Neill, Keith Lamont Scott, Laquan McDonald, Walter L. Scott, Nia Wilson, Freddie Gray, Eric Harris, Sandra Bland, Philando Castile, Trayvon Martin, Jamel Robertson, and E.J. Bradford. Rest in power. Yeah. And of course, those are only a small amount of people who have had their lives cut short because our country is still really fucking racist. But what I really loved about this, though, as a non-black person, was at, at the very end, they say, they say, all the non-black people, please leave. All the black people stay. And so I don't know what happened in that room, but for all of the people who weren't black, at the very end, the one of, one of, the, first, one of the artists of, involved at in Movement Theater Company, they, she basically said, thank you for coming to this experience, and we don't want this to end after you have left. And so we have information here about with literature that you can read and ways that you can also contribute to, you know, a society that is not anti-black. And I actually found that really helpful because seeing suffering, especially as as a non-black person, like sometimes you just feel like you're just a voyeur and you and the act of you seeing it is supposed to be like educational for you and that's the work except like the work isn't just like witnessing it the work is actually like having conversations with racist family members because you know i saw this before thanksgiving or about amplifying voices of, of black people and so what i actually wanted to do because we could and we didn't have time to like 
find take one of our black friends to see the show. I actually want want to refer all of you to uh, one of the very few black black critics who wrote about this show. Uh, it's from Tamara Best for the Daily Beast. And so, if you want to hear a black perspective on the show, please go there. But otherwise, closing thoughts, Jose. That's all I wanted to say about this show. Mm-hmm. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for having all of us, and thank you for and thank you for Alicia, Alicia Harris for for talking about the white gaze because it continues to be problematic. Uh, the show is thirty dollars, and it's running until December eighth. Woo! Interview time. Interview time. Speaking of white gays, we interviewed Ming Pfeiffer and Midori Francis. Uh, Ming is a playwright, Midori is an actor, and they're both doing the show at Roundabout Theater Company right now called Usual Girls, which is about a young girl named Kyung who's Korean-American, and she's growing up in a small white town in middle America, and all of the racist and sexist bullshit that she encounters growing up. So this is a theme of an episode of life. Uh, Usual Girls is playing until December 23rd at Roundabout Theater Company. So check out the interview. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, like, the elevator pitch of what the play is about? Uh, so, yeah, basically, it follows uh, Midori's character, Kyung, starting on a playground and sort of navigates through her life up until uh, late 20s, once she's kind of uh, an adult woman uh, living in New York City and just sort of charts all the moments where sort of her gender sort of sexual politics have sort of uh morphed her life and kind of affected her and it kind of points out uh the ways in which we're kind of socialized based on um gender expectations um yeah and how those things can be dangerous uh Mitori, you thrive and female ensembles. I love the wolves more than I can tell you. We both love yeah. Thank you. And also, usual girls is mostly, there's boys, obviously, but it's mostly, you interact mostly with other female actors. Can you talk a little bit about what you get of, you know, being surrounded by other incredible female actors like yourself, as opposed sure. to working with like a bunch of boys? boys. Yeah. Um, I wasn't actually a cast of all men. At one point, I did uh, Peter and the Starcatcher mm-hmm. at Virginia Stage Company, and that was me and like eleven men stuck in Virginia. Oh, and I will say, like, one of the questions that I always get about working with females is like, "Do you guys fight? Uh, what are the conflict? You know, they, they just, there's like an assumption that there's conflict, which is hilarious because I find the times I've worked with primarily women, it's like so easy in a way and it's easy in in a like an emotional way it's easily easy in like an intellectual way there's just like a certain kind of understanding that you have with each other where um you don't have to explain things um and they're just there's just like a base level of understanding that's really lovely um and to answer your question i found it to be awesome you know uh i think 
comparing, uh, it's natural to compare female plays because there aren't as many, but I, the wolves and mutual girls are so wildly different. Um, but if we are going to compare, I think just in both plays, girls get to be weird and goofy and bold and not what you think of when you think of uh, like feminine. Um, and that's super fun. Mm. Yeah. And well, it's an also a very particular story about a girl, like a Korean American girl growing up in a predominantly white town. And there's this, because there, I, I know for me as an Asian American woman, like, yes, there's a socialization, but there's also the la- extra layer of shame on top of that. Oh, yeah. And so, did and, and so, like, how, like, growing up in this kind of culture, like, how have the both two of you navigated, like, these very uh, disparate influences? <laughs> Uh, not super well. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, you know, well, maybe better now, you know, creating, uh, art about it. But, um, you know, I think Midori and I talk a lot about, yeah. you know, especially being Asian American, you're not really seen at all in society and you're not even seen as American often. You're sort of the perpetual foreigner. And so, you know, in terms of, diversity and, uh, you know, because I've never really seen myself reflected, I think it's even doubly damaging because I was constantly having these experiences where I was being otherized for my race, but then not kind of seeing that explored at all. And so, you know, in the play, there are a lot of times, you know, where there are very audible gasps in the audience of, you know, times when race does come up. And it's interesting because, you know, for us, we're kind of like, oh, yeah, but, and a lot of people are shocked and a lot, and some people ask, oh, you know, did that really happen? Or was that sort of just a way to dramatically, yeah, dramaturgically just weave race into it. And I'm like, no, that happened to me in kindergarten, yeah. you know, where, I was, you know, called a racial slur for the first time. Um, and we're so not alone. And I think that's like one of the most important things about this is, and shame is a beautiful word and one that is, I'm sure, particular to all people of color, but I think, um, Asian people in particular in this country have been uh, branded like a model minority. And in that sense, I think culturally, um, the pressure is put upon us not to complain and to be grateful. And, you know, when you're part of a culture that has been consistently laughed at, you know, like laughed at in, in the media and in, in theater or silenced or not taken seriously as a human being, of course there's shame. You're walking around with it. It's in your, it's in your blood. And so, um, meeting Ming was for me just like a huge moment in my life because I met somebody else who was not afraid to talk about it. And made me feel less crazy for for having these experiences. And the most moving thing for me is uh, having the opportunity to put her on stage and like uh, seeing Asian people after the show come up to us and just like kind of let out this sigh of like thank you and like you're not alone. And so sometimes it's important to remember that even if people aren't outwardly complaining about it every day, or, or if we haven't yet come together 
in a, in a strong movement, it doesn't mean it's not happening. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I think what you're saying about the model minority thing is, yeah, is really linked to the extra layer of shame because you're expected to not have anything to complain about. So yeah. when you do feel mm-hmm. upset about something or feel wrong by something, you then feel doubly guilty about feeling bad because yeah. you do look at other minorities who are, who do have, you know, a much more troubling and traumatic history yes. with America. But, that doesn't mean that we haven't had our yeah. own share of uh, yeah. struggles and as in, well. In a lot of ways, I think like the mocking of a person, the mocking, the silencing, the laughing at, in a lot of ways is the death of oneself. And it might not be a physical death, but to me, like it's if it's it's a death. It's a it's a death of personality. It's a death of um, the ability to be funny on one's own, not be but not being just laughed at. Um, the ability to have a strong point of view and opinion, which I think some people, that's what makes me so unique. Um, so I think representation in this way is so vital. And the play is a lot about, like, there's this moment in the play where Midori's character, Kiyam, like, shaves her, you know, shaves her pussy for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> and and when I was watching it, it made me think, well, the play talks about, like, when did we learn this, this is a thing we're supposed to do? And then it made me think, wait, when did I learn when that was a thing that, that we should all be doing? Like, like, working on this project, what have you discovered about, like, socialization? female socialization. Well, recently in the news, there was like this big headline because there was going to be the first ever razor commercial that actually featured a female's body with hair. Did you see this? Yeah. So it's the first time in the history of selling female razors, because if you think about it, think about those commercials. It's all smooth legs. It's they're shaving already hairless armpits and it makes no sense. So for the first time ever in 2018, there's going to be a new advertisement where it actually features female hair. So to go to that question of where do we learn these things? It's in everything. It's in the media. It's the fact that we're not even seeing females' bo- bodies in their, you know, normal human state, which is, you know, having hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or having periods. Like, yeah. We're, we're still not using, we're using blue liquid to signify menstrual blood. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, thinking about the the myths and the plain lies that we're told when we're yeah. growing up about how sex and our bodies work, what's like the maybe one thing that you learned as an adult or growing up that was a complete lie and bullshit, and then you want to let every child out there know this is a lie? <laughs> I, I just I didn't know I didn't know how you get pregnant. I mean, which is like very. <laughs> appropriate for our show because there's literally a line is like get pregnant get pregnant but I mean I, I almost it's like as if I was born in the 1930s but I remember when I got my period I got my period young and my mom was just like well now you can get pregnant and I really had no idea because I was so little I mean I knew what sex was but I didn't connect the dots and so for I walked around for a year thinking like if I touch someone I could get pregnant I truly had no idea and I just uh, now I know which is great. Oh I'm aware now. Um, thank you, Ming. I learned that in 2016. But I, um, yeah, I mean, that to me is just so absurd. And for me, if I can, like, when I have a daughter, I will. The shame about menstruating is so bizarre and absurd. Mm. It makes no sense. 
And I would love to, um, you know, demystify, help demystify that. And, and it's, it's just crazy. Yeah. Uh, I, I recently learned, I guess not that, but like that blue balls is not actually a thing. But, um, I think part of that, the reason that was such, at least when I was growing up was something that was very much in the ether was because like so much of talk around sex is surrounded around male pleasure. And whereas female pleasure is never really talked about or, you know, just the idea of women faking orgasms and things like that. Or that women masturbate. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so like, I think the reason I bring that up, even though it's like a male anatomy thing is just, I, I think I didn't even have I didn't even have, like, I think fake things to go off. I just had no information at all. It wasn't even, like, myths surrounding my body. It was just sort of no information at all. Like, recently, I've watched both the Ali Wong specials, which are amazing. But, like, I've learned so much about pregnancy from those stand-up specials. I did not learn that. (laughs) I did not learn (laughs) I'm 30 years old. Like, I didn't know that about pregnancy, about something that my body is capable of doing, you know what I mean? Until this age. And that's kind of scary that it takes, you know, it's awesome that we have an artist that's willing, that's like going up there and talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Come to our play. Um, but, (laughs) but yeah, like that is, that's kind of crazy. I think we just haven't really talked about the female body in a way and shown it in its true. Yeah. Humanity. That's why I think all these, you know, these body positive movements, these things where, you know, women not shaving, I think it's awesome because for the first time we're or not for the first time I shouldn't say that um, there have been these waves throughout history but why we're kind of seeming to pendulum swing back to people kind of really rebelling or or really embracing femininity but in this empowered in this way. empowered way where it's like oh this is my choice yeah. to look like this yeah. or dress this way and that goes back to the socialization question you know about like where do these things come from I think a big part of this whole place like who knows like right they just come from some Somewhere. And then yeah. it's like exploring white like, hetero patriarchy. Yeah, but with cisgendered white hetero patriarchy. I think the idea is once you become aware that of the, all the ways in which you don't have a choice, I think uh, you have to learn that first, right? You have to educate yourself in all the ways that you, you were ever taught to dress or taught to think about yourself. And then once you have that information, you can make whatever choice you want. You know, you can put on heels and wear lipstick, but it's about understanding what your choices have been and the limitations of those and then making new choices. Can you recall, can you talk about the very first time that you saw yourself represented in, in the media, whether it was a movie, a television show, a book, or a play or musical? Yeah. My beginning ones were mostly bad. It would be like, I remember being at like sleepovers and stuff and then like seeing the movie. It's actually that Christmas story movie. Oh. Um, we looked like, was it, is it Christmas story? The one with the, the big chew yeah. Yeah. And then there was these sort of like um, Chinese servers at a restaurant seeing Death the Halls with like a very harsh accent. And I remember being with my friends and family feeling very embarrassed about that. So a lot of my first ones are really negative. But then I remember uh, when Charlie's Angels came out seeing Lucy Liu. And that was like somebody who was <laughs> kick ass, strong, funny, attractive. And that was like so cool for me. I just felt like, oh, I have somebody to like identify with. Yeah. I 
think mine was probably like、uh, Christy Yamaguchi and Michelle、mm-hmm. Kwan, just the figure skaters, because I was like a big athlete. I didn't do figure skating, which is you know、uh, a certain thing, but just seeing.、Um, People in the U.S. Olympics and being represented, representing America specifically in such a high-profile,、uh, treasured kind of ritual of ours as Americans was was I think、uh, a big one for me and my mom and I would watch that. So、Aww. it was like something we did together. Yeah. Like as a teenage girl, Jose. As a teenage girl, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't want to. Obviously, I don't want to like talk about. I can't talk about、uh-huh. you know what being a girl's like. But in many ways, I was very.、Uh, I was not surprised. I knew this all along, but I was very pleased also because, like, in many ways, queer people and especially I think gay boys go through a lot of like the. Bullshit that little girls go through,、mm-hmm. especially with like macho bullies. Yeah, and, like where you do this, or I'm gonna tell on you, or like you know, like show me this, or I'm gonna like, yeah. So again, it's obviously not the same, but I, 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 I identified myself with Kyung in many ways that I did not see coming. So that was that was interesting. Being a teenage girl in America, like you have this contradiction of. Like people sexualize your body, they they yell things at you, and yet you're shamed if you have a knowledge of your body or if you own it in some way. And so I, I don't know what to say about that, except thank you, Ming, for writing a play about that. Speaking of that, I recently found out that Margot Seabert, who was on our last episode, who's you know the actress in the Thanksgiving play, and we talked about her new album, Seventy Seventh Street, she. Is the co-founder of this incredible organization called Racket, and I'm、mm-hmm. gonna read what what Racket is. So,、uh, yeah. but I highly suggest that everyone seeks this.、Uh, why Racket? The goal is to make as much noise about periods as it takes to normalize the conversation and draw attention to underprioritized menstrual hygiene needs, helping <sighs> menstruators ask for and again. And gain access to what they need to take care of their periods encourages a sense of agency, thereby allowing them to participate fully in society. So Margot and her co-founder Caroline、uh, Angel know each other from like college, and they they do drives where they collect、uh, tampons and they do like this incredible like educational kits to send out to the people who need it. So I'm like I love Margot, and after realizing that she was doing this, I'm like I'm an, I'm an even bigger fan. Right, like I'm just a big fan of just normalizing the conversation about menstruation. I think I think that's why when I was you know menstruating for a month straight, like I was just telling everybody that that was happening because they're like, oh, deep, you, you sound you seem down or or you seem tired. I'm just like, yeah, I've been bleeding for a month. That's what happens when、yeah. you when you bleed for a month. Yeah, and like also like I I always get like very upset about with men. Who are who are like you know who are like ooh I would never go in like the like the tampon yeah, yeah. and like、uh, pad aisle at the drugstore and I'm like dude like everyone knows you don't have your period like、exactly. relax like relax or like parents like fathers who are so embarrassed to go buy their daughters、uh, tampons and、yeah. and pads I'm like 
what is your problem? Like, I am, if there are any listeners out there who their parents are, like, embarrassed to go buy you tampons and pads, I will buy your tampons and pads. Yeah. Or you can buy them on the internet now. That's true. Everything delivers. Anyway, uh, we're not talking. (laughs) Our 11 o'clock number is not about why people should talk about periods more. What is it about? We should totally do one of those, though. (laughs) So recently there was like a very infamous, very despicable tweet, I want to say. Someone in the industry said that uh, in order to fall in love with theater, people should stop reading reviews. And oh, that- I'll call them out. It was Paul Wanterek, who is the editor-in-chief of Broadway.com, which yeah. does Broadway news and they sell tickets. I just didn't want to like mention his name in the same way that mm. I don't mention the president's name because I don't want to bring attention to bad men. Mm, well, I'm I'm a big fan of public shaming. I already did on Twitter. So, <laughs> I- But anyway, so this, this man following the rhetoric mm. of the president in many ways – uh, about how anyone who doesn't agree with what you think should be, you know, removed from the planet and you should pretend they don't exist and not en- engage with their work, said this. And rather than just like complaining about this guy who sounds like a jerk, to be honest, we want to talk about the reasons why we do this and why we love theater and why we hope that you also love theater. So deep uh, to, you know, like counteract this horrible yeah. tweet. Who are the people? Like I have, I have the idea that in order to fall in love with theater, it's even more important that you read reviews. And I know that you know the New York Times gets very gets. Oh God, I don't want to use the word attacked, but people are always pissed at the New York Times when a negative review comes out. And we're not going to go into like a conversation about how much power this one mm-hmm. outlet has because that would be, yeah, that's a whole other discussion. But one of the things for which I admire Ben Brantley the most is because um, he was uh, one of our instructors when I went to the National Critics Institute at the O'Neill in 2016. And one of the things that he said was that his reviews were meant to be consumed after people have seen the show, not before. And that's something that I've always thought criticism should do. Critics should not dictate your taste. They should not tell you what to do. They're not, I mean, if you're a child, critics are not your parents. And if you're an adult, critics are not like, you know, like a dictator. They're not like a supreme Mm -hmm. leader telling you what to do. That's not our job. So, Maybe next time you approach Mr. Brantley's work, keep that in mind. He's not telling you, don't see this, see this, do what I'm telling you to do. Instead, he's trying to open up a conversation about the show that you just saw or the show that you might see at some point. It's not, it's not a consumer report. So I think the critics that make me fall in love with the art all the time are those who follow that, um, unspoken rule which i think we all should talk about more often because people think that we are consumer reports they think we're amazon reviews right well and i don't think it's even that i think people think that reviews are written for the artists and reviews are written you know to like take someone down and ben brantley and i've heard charles ishwitz say the same say the same thing i've heard so many critics say it which is review the reviews aren't meant for artists 
they're not there to make your job to make your art better the review is meant for regular people because before i was seeing three shows a week I was just a normal person who loved theater, but who couldn't afford it. And the only way I could consume it before the age of YouTube was through theater reviews. And they taught me how to look critically at a piece of art. And they taught me that some most things aren't 100% good or 100% bad. There are things that are in the middle. And sometimes the certain certain shows will have elements that work and elements that don't work so let's talk about that let's unpack that not because we we hate this artist and we don't think they should work again but because having a conversation about this one makes us as readers smarter because then we learn to consume things critically and consume it outside of a commercialist a commercialistic capitalistic mindset where the things are that cost the most money are exempt from criticism, like we can consume things on our own terms. Yeah, that's part of why I think things like Rotten Tomatoes, for instance, in the movie industry are so toxic because they reduce art. And we acknowledge that every kind of art takes work, dedication, and passion. Even something like King Kong, Mm -hmm. like the care with which that puppet was made. You know, people... Like put a lot of sweat, tears, and blood into that thing. Maybe not blood, but whatever. But maybe blood. I mean, there is a part in King Kong where like they jump off of his back. <laughs> That's true. One of the best things about criticism, and it, it's why criticism has been around for so long. I mean, people like George Bernard Shaw and Oscar Wilde were critics, and their work, their criticism work, is art. And I think some of mm-hmm. my favorite critics, their work. It's also art. I've spoken before about I grew up in a part of the world where there was no theater, but I would still read reviews mm-hmm. from the New York Times, from Entertainment right, Weekly. That's how you, yeah. yeah. And even though I knew I was not going to go see any of those shows, I wanted to be part of the dialogue. And the best critics, people again like Mr. Brantley, often make. Um, they reference other art they love. And thanks to reviews by people like Chris Jones, for instance, or like Helen Shaw, I get to, oh, they mentioned this book. I'm going to go read this book or I'm going to go seek this. I'm going to go find this. And it's it's really beautiful. It's kind of like getting education for free from the masters. Oh, yeah. And then, I mean, the best criticism in my opinion are are things where you don't necessarily agree with them it's not that it's things you learn from it like you learn to voice a little bit clearly like what it is that you're feeling like uh this this past weekend was thanksgiving weekend and you know i had four days off and i wasn't going to the theater but i was i got addicted to this youtube channel from this uh movie movie critic her name's Lindsay ellis and she reviewed one of the movies she, she reviewed was phantom of the opera the joel schumacher 2006 film version of the musical and the thing is that film has always been one of the things that I love and I hate at the same time. And I've always had trouble like, voicing exactly what it is about it that doesn't work besides a very, you know, obvious fact that Gerard, Gerard Butler can't sing. 
But what Lindsay did in her video, which is 40 minutes and you should all watch it, is she took down piece by piece, like where it doesn't work tonally and where it doesn't work in terms of the history and trend of movie musicals. And after that, I was like, oh my God, I've learned so much about like the rules of filmmaking and, and how certain angles denote certain things or about pacing and, and that's what really good critics criticism does like you get something more from it than just this show is good this show is bad yeah let us also not forget the many ways in which critics are also champions like we mm-hmm. really do this because we love it just thinking about you know peter marx who has a podcast also on american theater peter was almost single-handedly responsible for the success of Dear Evan Hansen. Like, I've heard producers thank him because it was because through his writing... For the Washington Post. Yes. Through his writing, and he kept writing about the show and how much he loved it and how he kept championing the show. And what happened? The show went on to go to Broadway. It won, like, a gazillion toadies. So I get it that if you're an artist and someone gives your work a negative review, because I don't think there's anything as, like, a bad review... But if they give your work a negative review, I get it. You're going to be pissed. Like, you're human. We're humans. We don't like negative feedback about ourselves. Mm-mm. But also remember that they're not doing this to attack you. And also remember, for every negative review someone gives your work or the work of an artist, if you're not an artist, there's also, like, a million other examples of how critics have championed and have brought to the surface works that other people weren't paying attention to. And it's not, that's not to say like, you know, critics aren't assholes sometimes and their bad writing happens everywhere. But I feel like the bad, one of the negative things about the Twitter age, I feel, is this need to categorize something as good or bad. Like Ben Brantley wrote a bad review of King Kong. Therefore, all critics are bad and you should not read them. And so this need to just villainize a group of people just because you disagree with their opinion is very Trumpian and very closed-minded and does nothing for the discourse and makes us all dumber as human beings. So please stop doing that. Yes. If you're willing to take on an assignment, think of it as like fun homework for the holidays. One of my favorite things to tell young people who want to go into arts writing is to go on Tumblr, go on, you know, Google, like all the blogs or whatever, and find a critic who has a tiny blog or a Tumblr or even like tweet reviews. Go find that person and make sure to share that person's work. Help us, you know, keep doing our our job. Or share this podcast. Ha, shameless plug. I mean, I think we're doing all right for ourselves. But yeah, go find people and, you know, yeah, if we didn't love doing this, we wouldn't be sitting this here doing this right now. Yeah. It's been, raining right now. Like, yeah. I could be, like, home. We've been talking for an hour. Yes. It's like, do you, know you know how much you have to love theater to talk about it for an hour on a Monday afternoon? Yes. The one thing that I wish I, I could have done, uh, well, we could have done better, like, as a society is, like, when I was thinking about the critics that made me fall in love with art... Most of the critics that I thought about when it came to theater are mostly white. Yeah, we're just trying to make it better. More voices is better. 
Yes. And Wesley Morris, if you ever listen to this podcast, I love you. Yeah, I love you too. You're, you're my you're my favorite. Please mentor us. Please don't have a drink with us. <laughs> exactly. Show us the ways of the world, Obi Wan. <laughs> it's so nerdy. <laughs> he would understand. Anyway, uh that is it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. Uh Wait, I was going to say happy holidays, but we're not done for the year yet. Two more shows. As always, please subscribe to Token Theater Friends. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. And leave us a review or a rating. It helps people find us and it makes us happy because then it means people are listening. If you have thoughts on the things we discussed, please leave us a comment. Send us an email, tokentheaterfriends at gmail.com. Uh, you can find the links to things that we talked about on tokentheaterfriends.com. Um, anything else, Jose? The weekend of January 11th, after the holiday, so you have no excuse. We are going to be at Broadway Con doing Token Theater Friends Live. We're going to have guests, giveaways, and a lot of fun. So please go see us. Mm-hmm. Oh, and speaking of seeing us, if you want to see us on your phone, you can subscribe subscribe to our YouTube channel where we post the interviews of our guests and us sitting down. And you can see, and Jose likes to wear fun t-shirts. And all our guests are so pretty. Yeah. And you can see how long Jose's beer's gotten because from where I'm sitting... It's not longer than usual. It's not longer than usual, but I feel like it's like... There's a lot of volume there. Well, it's winter beard. If you you also grew a winter beard, you would see what it's like. It keeps your face warm. All right. And as always, theater is more fun when you take your friends. Bye. Bye. Bye.